Welcome to Lobster Brain, the podcast that shows you that you can rewire your brain through neuroplasticity. We know about that from studying lobsters. When lobsters fight, their brains change. So both winner and loser can cope with their change in status. As humans, our brains can be rewired too. But unlike lobsters, if we lose, we can still win again in the future. In this podcast, you'll hear from highly successful people, or as we'll be calling them, top lobsters, to discover that with the right mindset, you can bounce back from tough times to be more resilient and win again. I'm Danny Donerkey. And I'm Lisa Morton. And in this episode of Lobster Brain, you're going to hear from Rodney Marsh. Rodney was one of the most successful and charismatic footballers in the 60s and 70s. He played for Fulham, Queen's Park Rangers, and when he signed for Manchester City was the record signing in the Premier League. He was also an England international, and when he finished playing, he became a football pundit for the likes of Sky Sports. And in Manchester in the 1970s, he spent a lot of his time in the nightclubs with his best friend, George Best. He's well known for controversy in his life, and we'll get into that in this episode. Rodney is the epitome of a top lobster because his unparalleled conviction of his own beliefs is incredible. But yet when you delve below the surface, he's also lived a life where he has had not necessarily doubts about himself, but he's had challenges that go way beyond what most people could comprehend. He's got a soft side underneath that hard exterior. And I'd like you to know that he's one of my dearest and oldest friends and he's always been there for me. He's always been a really generous and kind man. Danny, so you sent me around to your mum's to get Rodney's autobiography, so your family knows him really well, so tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I've known Rod since I was born, actually, Lisa. And as our listeners are going to find out, he's quite a challenging character, and we will speak about that in the podcast. But I'm sure the listeners will find out that he's got a real soft side beneath that hard exterior. And it's really fascinating this episode because we really learn how this hard exterior has been formed. So we're at home in our office and Rodney's in the States recording and we've got Will on the call with us, who's our producer. And obviously Rod kept checking in with Will and saying, I'm sure you'll go off and Google this stuff just in case we thought he was making any of these stories up. And I think it's one of the most compelling interviews that we've ever done. And Rod is not an easy person to interview, as you found out, Lisa, from right from the start. No, no, he stopped me in my track straight away, didn't he? Lisa, I'm happy to do anything. So it'd be, it'd be great to hear if you wouldn't mind sharing that with our listeners. Well, let's do this way, because um, there's a fundamental that I think is important, and that is, if you ask me a series of direct questions... I will give you direct answers. And then he never gave us a direct answer. I can see the analogy, but I, I don't think you've answered my question. The way I would analyse that would be, that's more of a question for you than it is for me. I feel like you avoided my question. Thank you. <laughs> I think you thought you were paying him a compliment there. <laughs> <laughs> I, as you know, Lisa, I find him hilarious and I think our audience will f also find him hilarious. Uh, but when you find out the context of where this exterior comes from, you know, what's happened to him in his life, and he'll go into great detail about that, there's a little bit of sadness that comes with it, obviously, at the same time. 
And just to let you know, you'll hear stories of domestic violence in this episode. My success for myself came out of the failure of not producing or being beaten by my dad with a belt. He used to beat me with a belt. So coming out of that, it was a... I'm taking a positive out of this because I'm going to make sure that I'm the best. My heart sinks when I hear that, Lisa. Um, You know, he says that his success comes from failure, but then quickly mentions his dad and brings the belt into it. And, you know, just to think as as a young man, what must have happened to him and that drove that success, it's, it's really difficult to hear. I completely agree and anybody that listens to this podcast is going to really understand what an incredible, unique human being Rodney Marsh is and how he's used all of those challenges and that adversity to create a life that feels right for him. And as listeners will we'll find out, we do get to that softer part of him, finally. Danny obviously knows you well. I don't, but I feel like you were such a big part of my growing up because I, we were in a city household until I was 11 years old. I shared a bedroom with my brother and I had one side and he had the other and we had um, single beds. And on his side of the bedroom, he had all the city posters and all the little little uh, cards he used to collect. And so obviously just come around to reading your autobiography, which I'll talk about in a minute. It all came back to me. So all those names were such a massive part of my DNA. I'd forgotten about it. But yeah, so it just shows how much football was discussed in our house. So, oh. But I went round to Danny's mum's house because Danny told me that she had an autobiography of yours. So priceless. And I went round on a Sunday morning and she was relaxing on a Sunday morning and she spoke very highly of you, obviously. And she gave me the book. And inside the book, you signed it to Danny's dad. Um, and there's a beautiful message in there to Willie. I've got to say that I read the book and I have to say in all the conversations we've had so far about rewiring your brain and coming from a place of possible adversity that this is one of the most moving stories I've read. And some of the early difficulties and challenges you, you face as a young person in terms of abuse and trauma was really really hard to read and I just wondered if you'd be happy to share some of that with us because I think it exemplifies how you've then gone on to rewire your brain and and kind of rewrite your story. I'm uh, Lisa I'm happy to do anything. So it'd be it'd be great to hear if you wouldn't mind sharing that with our listeners. Well Let's do this way because um, there's a fundamental, um, uh, I don't know how many of these you're going to do or how many you've done, but there's a fundamental um, that I think is important and that is if you ask me a series of direct questions, I will give you direct answers. And that includes you, Danny. You know, if you, you, you want to jump in and ask me a direct question, I'll answer the direct question. How do you think your childhood um, has shaped who you are today? Um, Okay. First of all, um, I believe that everybody's childhood and everybody's early life experiences are unique to the individual. I believe in every case, with no exception, that your 
individual life experiences mold you as a person. Um, the Greeks used to say, show me a man before he's five and I'll show you the man. Well, that would be what I think of life. My, my early life experiences made me into the person that I still am today in my sevenses. Rod, I, I had a memory of you when I, when I was young, when we stayed at your house in Florida. And I was probably about, I don't know, maybe five. And you were in the lounge. We're, everyone else was outside. You were in the lounge. And I just remember you being really scary. And I just remember you having these M&Ms. And I was too scared to ask for one. And as I've got older, you've become less scary. And I've seen a softer side to you. So I'm curious about, you know, Lisa mentioned about your, a lot of your childhood was tough, really tough. And I'm curious about whether this scary side that I felt was maybe a defense that formed because of that childhood. Interesting. Um, the way I would analyze that would be, that's more of a question for you than it is for me. What was it about me that made you scared? Um, because could it have been a subconscious thing as a child that you felt this is a very violent person and I better not upset him? Or was it um, by osmosis where you absorb something from somebody else? You know, when you hear stories about um, other people, I'll give a great example, I'll give you a great example. And I'm sure that when we're finished, Will is going to document all of this and go and check it out to make sure that it coincides with Google. I'm sure he's going to do something like this. But I once met a man, and I was in my late 50s. I met a man, his name was Mad Frankie Fraser, who was an axe murderer. And we were both hired by a company. It was called Campari. Campari is a drink. And we were hired by this company to do a commercial together. Mad Frankie Fraser, that used to hit people in the face with, with an axe, and Rodney Marsh. And we went to this uh, meeting, the, the pro-commercial um, meeting, to, to set it all up and all that. And I went, and I was kind of, I was kind of uh, nervous. I, was, I, I didn't want to say anything out of place because I knew that, He'd been, over the years, he'd done some very, very horrible things, including being in prison for 15 years. When I met him, it was, Rodney, I love the way you play. Do you remember the game that you played against Arsenal at Highbury? You scored two goals, and he was just like a normal person. So the pre was completely opposite to how he was with me. Now, is that on him or is that on me? That's for other people to decide, I guess. I read in the book that you said, I think your dad had had an expression, which was that you can do whatever you want in this world as long as you're prepared to live with the consequences. And that's coupled with yep. the fact that you, what really comes across is, as I read the book is your integrity and conviction throughout your life. But sometimes that's got you into trouble. So do you... Looking Not back, sometimes. A lot of the time, yeah. Um, can you tell me why um, why you also believe that's true, that correlation between standing up for what you believe in and then having to face those consequences? I don't know 
with the censorship of what you're about to do with your podcast, how you do it. This is probably one for Will, but I will tell you the whole story and you can work it out for yourself. Um, I grew up with, you can do whatever you want to do in this, in this world, providing you're prepared to take the consequences of what you do, right? In my will and my trust, I've got a line that says, I want it to be my epitaph that above all else to thine own self be true, which is from Shakespeare. And I believe that. I believe as long as you do what you feel is right and you're being true to yourself, then the consequences, damn the consequences, right? The example is this. An example, there's probably been 12 or 15, but an example is this. I played a game for Manchester City and we played against Burnley and the score was nil-nil and I was the captain of the team and, and I was playing great at the time. we just beaten Arsenal away 3-2 at Highbury. I scored the winning goal with a diving header and everything was great. And we played Burnley at home at Main Road and the score was nil-nil. And after the game, we came in and our coach, his name was Ian McFarlane, and he was fuming. He was all the snot was coming down his nose. He was he was so angry. He was you know, and he, he was, we can't do that. It's nil nil. It's Burnley. I said, Ian, it's only nil nil. And Ian, and then Dennis Stewart said, calm down, calm down. And Ian McFarlane turned around and smashed a forearm into Dennis Stewart's neck, and he fell backwards and hit his, hit his back on the radiator. And I went over there and I got hold of Tony and I said to Tony Book, I said, we can't have this. You can't allow this. What is going on, Ian? What, what are you doing? And, and um, it all kind of died down. Well, on the Monday, I get a phone call from Peter Swales, the chairman. And he said, Rodney, I said, he said, I understand that you were very vocal in the dressing room after the game. So I said, what do you mean? He said, well... Did, weren't you remonstrating with Ian McFarlane and Tony Book and about you know? And I said, yeah, I was. And he said, do you think that was appropriate? And I said, I'm the captain of the team. Uh, I think it's entirely appropriate. He said, meet me in the boardroom in an hour. So he came down to he was he was he wasn't on site. So he came down to Main Road. I met him in the boardroom. And he said, what was all that about? And I told him the story. And he said, well, that's the management team doing... I said, well, that's wrong. I said, that's a mistake. You shouldn't be doing that with players. You're going to lose the trust of the players. And I said, as, and as captain, I thought that was the right thing to do, to, to, to break it all up. And he said, Rodney, he said, um, it's Tony Book's decision, not yours. He said, what do you think about Tony Book as a manager? <laughs> and I said... Do you really want to know, Mr. Chairman? <laughs> and he said, yes. And I said, he's fucking useless. <laughs> and that is facts. That's not, I've not sugarcoated that or I've not exaggerated or understated it. That's a fact what happened. And within 30 minutes, Tony Booker called me to his office and sacked me saying that he did say do you want to take that back Rodney and I said no that's what I think so to your point Lisa I understood the consequences but but above all else I was true to myself
how did you feel then from that fall from grace immediately? Because you you've gone from city captain then to presumably, I think the line of the book is that you were then hanging around with the, with people who the week before been asking for your autograph. So did you reflect on the consequences of your actions and how did you feel about it? I think we all do that. You know, you know, there's, um, as this is a partial psychological piece that you're doing, there's a thing that I believe in. Maybe you believe in it too. I believe, I believe that everybody at certain times goes to bed they can be on their own or they can be with a partner or it doesn't matter, but they're in bed and the lights are dark and they're falling asleep and they're thinking. And everybody is alone with their own demons. I believe that. I believe that you think about the things that you've done wrong, about the people that you've hurt, about the mistakes that you've made. I believe that's true of everybody. Now, you, do, would you, first of all, would you agree with that? Do you, have you ever laid in bed at night in the dark room thinking, my demons are this, or I wish this, or I wish that person hadn't done To answer your question, there are times when I, I lay like that, thinking of, of the things in, in, in my life where it could have been different, and I say, absolutely not. Because I did what Rodney Marsh did and at the time I did it I was right to do it. Rod in your book you speak about when you were 19 and you were told that you may never play football again. Yeah. And I'm sure you told me a story about that and I don't think you go into it in your book. So what actually happened? How did you end up playing again? Well I went for again for this is for Will this is all documented if you want to check it out on Google. I played in the game for for Fulham versus Leicester and Gordon Banks was in goal for Leicester and I was a kid I was only 18 years old 18-ish um, and it was nil-nil and I went for a diving header and I headed the ball and it went straight in the top corner and at the same time a defender was coming out and smashed his head against my ear and uh, I was unconscious for 24 hours and totally deaf in my left ear from that point forward I lost my balance, the inner circular ear, the inner ear with the circular canals was all damaged and I couldn't get my balance and it took me, it took me months and months and months to come back. And after that, uh, when I did come back, I developed a way of jumping for the ball so that I protected my head when I was going for headers. And, and, uh, but I did come back from that and, and, and the, um, the surgeon said you should never play again. You should, you know, because if you have another incident like that, you know, it might cause uh, permanent, uh, permanent damage. So um, that's what happened. And I carried on and I played and, and turned it around. But I'm sure you told me that you saw a faith healer and it was, uh, it was the faith healer that made you recover or helped you recover. Uh, did I use the words faith healer? Because I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, that's good <laughs> enough. Um, because over the years, I've spoken to different psychologists and people that were close to me that had certain skills. And I was, I am a person of faith. I do, I, I do believe in a certain destiny. I do believe in a certain destiny to life and the old um, whatever will be, will be type thing. And 
And I've always kind of lived that way. So it wasn't monumental, but um, that decision was was to carry on playing. Yeah. I feel like you avoided my question. Thank you. (laughs) 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 So I remember, again, in the book, that you said at one point in the close season that you were working with your dad in the docks, at the docks. Yeah. Which made me think how much football's changed since you started out. And I wondered what your view is of what football, the positives and negatives that football brings now. I mean, obviously, I know you went on your career to to not have to work at the docks with your dad. And I think your transfer to City was one of the, the highest transfer bids at the time. But it just strikes me now, and we kind of see some of the challenges, obviously Danny works with loads of footballers, and the challenges are often brought by the wealth that they have and the lack of, I suppose, reality. So just wonder what how you reflected now on being a footballer today in the Premier League and, and your experiences back then. Oh, oh, my goodness. The way that I would answer that would be would be to give you some background into me before I give you the background into today's players, and that is this: I, I was always I was always a very flamboyant personality and character. That may seem a little bit understated, but that's true. <laughs> and and that was kind of my life. And I believed I believed very much in my own ability and in myself and in in you know not only not only from a an athletic point of view, but also from an intellectual point of view. I believed I was more intelligent than other players. I believed I was better than other players. Um, I believed I was always destined to be a superstar of football. You add all that together and you end up with a, a young man that uh, this is true. I believed, I be- when, when I was 15 and 16 at school, I dropped out of school at 16 to play football. Uh, as, as an apprentice, ground staff boy at Fulham as a kid. In my school, which was a very, very good school, I studied Shakespeare for two years. So a lot of my belief comes from Shakespeare uh, and, and his writings. And there's so many things about Shakespeare that I navigate throughout my life. I've, I've not talked about this much because I've never been on a, a psychological podcast like this before. So... An example would be, a great example would be, I left Queen's Park Rangers up there. We just won the double. No third division team had ever done the double before. We won the, the League Cup at Wembley. I scored a goal at Wembley and it was, you know, it was just fantastic. And I was at the peak of my career, 26 years of age. And Manchester City came in for me. Manchester City were the team. Great, great players. Great success. Five trophies in six years under Malcolm Allison and Joe Mercer. Uh, they even got a player called Willie Donachie who got in the team at times. <laughs> so you, you, I go there and, and I went there and people started saying, you know, Rodney, how are you going to adapt? To, and I remember Mike Doyle, the captain, you know, how are you going to adapt to being in this, you know? I looked at it like this. I am the superstar of a Shakespeare play and all you other players are there to make me look good. I looked at myself as being bigger and better than, than everybody else. Now, you could say that's arrogant and you could say that it's, um, you know, uh, 
cocky or whatever you want to say or or worse but for what it's worth that was my own logic to myself so I'd never I never had that I never had that kind of problem um, at that time with money or without money or buying big cars or um, I, I bought a Jensen and a, an E-Type Jag and, blah, 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 and, all the, and and spent fortunes on, you know, gambling and, and, and drink and, and all that. And, um, and I spent a lot of money because I made a lot of money. I went from Queen's Park Rangers to being the highest paid player of Manchester City. And so that was, I was out there, right? Today, you have the same thing. But you have the players without the ability. So on here, over here, you've got the players with the ability that are doing certain things. Now you get Jack Grealish, who scores two goals in a season, and everybody goes, how great he is. I scored 19 goals in my first season. Right? So the comparison about the money and the, and the, um, the judging of how good or bad or not the players are is, is relative. I have to say, Lisa, I, I love Jack and I said as much to Rod in the interview, but I felt like in the first half of the interview uh, that we, it was a dance. We were dancing with Rodney and he was kind of checking us out psychologically and, and deciding whether he was going to go to those places or not. How was mm -hmm. it for you? Yeah, I feel it's always more difficult when you're <laughs> on a, you know, recording remotely because you don't have that rapport. It's difficult to build that on a screen. So, um, I felt like I had to put my big girl pants on and, and like crack on. So it was, it did feel like halfway through we could start to relax a bit more. Yeah. It was interesting for me, Lisa, because obviously I've known him since I was really young. And I don't know, for some reason, I thought that he might be on his best behavior with you and on the podcast. And, and it didn't take long for us to find out that he absolutely was not on his best behavior. <laughs> and it came as a, a little bit of a shock. Um, but one moment that really stayed with me was when he you know he said very early on about the Greeks and they said that show me a man before he is five and I will show you the man and he alludes to his early childhood experiences a lot and how that has shaped him and obviously he'll go on in the second half to speak more about that as well but it obviously had a big impact on him in his whole life. You'd never really consider that somebody like Rodney would be able to quote Shakespeare and yet he said that in his affairs for when he passes it's in there that he wants a Shakespeare quote as his epitaph and I've reflected on this conversation since we had it with Rodney and um, we'll talk about it more but certainly that deep reflection on on some of those Shakespearean values I think have shaped his life. Yeah, I think uh, in the in the second half of the interview, Rodney's going to speak a lot more about his childhood. And I think it's quite well known that when a child has a chaotic upbringing, they seek control in their life. So a lot of leaders, for example, become leaders because they want more control. And when Rodney is going to speak about things that happened with his dad early on, and it's no surprise that Rod wanted to be true to his own self, as Shakespeare said, um, because that gives him kind of a framework um, from which to get some sort of psychological control. And just for our listeners, Rodney, he talks about 
being hit with a belt by his his dad and that that belt was called Kennedy. His dad named the belt Kennedy. But let's get back to Rodney now. And I want to know more about where Rodney's deep belief comes from. Where that came from, the belief in myself came from my failure. If I ever did something where I failed at something, my dad would say, hey, what did you do that for? Why didn't you do this better? We need to train harder. You don't need to do this. You need to be staying out till nine o'clock at night. You missed the penalty. Now we're going to take 150 penalties until you score at 10 in a row. And so my, my success for myself and my goals for myself came out of the failure of not producing or, or being beaten by, with, by, by my dad with a belt. He used to beat me with a belt. So coming out of that, it was a, I'm taking a positive out of this because I'm going to make sure that I'm the best. That's where that comes from, I guess. I mean, I want to just ask a little bit more about that, if I can, about Kennedy and your dad. And I know that a lot of highly successful people have really conflicted relationships with the fathers. And the fathers seem to be, that you know, they've gone on to, to prove themselves to the dad in some way or that dad's being a massive force in whatever journey they've actually taken. So your dad treated you so badly in that piece in the book. It makes me feel upset now. And then you put up these barriers then and it affected your relationship yeah. with your dad forever. Ironically, yeah. I read that he got you on the first rung of the ladder. He phoned up West Ham and said he's the best lad in London. So how did that yeah. play out? Because you hated your dad for what he did to you quite rightly at that time, but then he clearly did love and respect you, want the best for you in his own way. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. All I know was the... I'll give you a story, another, another little story, okay? When my dad was a young man, when he was, when he was 20, 21, he used to live in the, in the east end of London before the war. So he, he lived in the east end of London in a silly, silly little one-bedroom one place that had tw like 12 people in it and they very, very incredibly poor, right? And he went out one Friday night and they had, uh, my granddad had a rule that you had to be in by 12. So my dad goes out in the east end and he comes in half past 12. It's pitch black and he comes in, he creeps into the house and my granddad said to him, is that you, Billy? And he went, yeah. And he went and smashed him straight in the face and broke his nose and all the blood came down from his nose. And he had a few drinks and he went to bed. Well, about a month or two later, my dad goes out again. He gets in late again. He's only a kid. He's only 19, 20, around there, right? And my granddad goes to the door again and said, is that you, Billy? And my dad went and smashed him in the face and, and smashed his face up. Left him in the hallway and went to bed. He's laying in a puddle of blood in the, in the hallway, my granddad. 4 a.m. in the morning, my granddad walks into, his, into the room with a hammer and smashes it through his knee. And for the rest of his life, my dad had an enormous great hole in his kneecap. So that's the environment that I grew up in. 
So when you ask the question about, he also loved me, that's true, but it's against the prism and the backdrop of the incredible violence that I knew that my family were involved in. And were you able ever to, to forgive your dad for that? No. No. I, I, I don't know if it's in the first book in Priceless, but um, the night before he died, he put his arms around me in London and said, uh, Rod, I love you so much. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't say anything. I didn't cuddle him back. I just let him hug me. And I went out and the next day he was dead. So I never had the opportunity to say I love you back. Possibly because that may have not been appropriate. Because I had to be true to myself. There's, a, there's also, everybody looks internally into their own lives. You're interviewing me. But this could be about you. When you look into your own life and you look at your dad or your mum or whatever and you think, did, did they do right there? Was that the right thing that they did? Were they trying to help me? Were they selfish? Was it all about them? And I looked at through my prison. I mean, you're, I'm sure that you guys have done that too in your own minds. You've... I think I think you'd be lying if you didn't say that. If you didn't analyse your own your own parents, right? You come up with your own answers, as I came up with my own answers, and I led my life according to above all else to thine own self be true. Well, it makes me your answer to the question about the belief and how it came through failure, and then when you mentioned that extreme violence, it makes me think about other players that I've worked with in the modern game that have got to a certain level through the same kind of failure and being pushed by their fathers, but it seems fragile and it doesn't seem as, as sustained as yours has been. So how do you think you got that inner belief and it, and it's been sustainable? I don't know. Um, and by the way, it, it's always, I, I told my grandkids, if you don't know the answer to something, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. You know, that's, there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. And I, and I don't. I don't, Danny. I just, I've always had this, this incredible, incredible belief in my own ability to make decisions both in life and in professional life. Um, when I got sacked from Sky Sports, it was, you know, I don't know if you remember that, Lisa, but I was sacked from Sky Sports. I always believed that I had the ability to do what I felt was right. And, you know, it's, it's not to hurt anybody else. It was just to be your own person and to be your own. And if you fail being your own person, that's one thing. But never fail in life um, because somebody else said, oh, Rod, by the way, you shouldn't have said that about Tony Book. You should have just gone along and said, no, he's fine. I'm, and then I've got a new four-year contract and I'll be in Manchester. If I would have did that, if I would have did that, Elton John would have never taken me to America. <laughs> Rod, you're very true to yourself and you've got this idea of who you are and you're true to that. And I was thinking about my first question about how, you know, I felt I found you were scary and I still do a little bit. And I think there's something about the your absolute confidence in who you are and this strong belief in who you are, that it's kind of a bit off-putting and unnerving. 
A lot of people have told me that, Danny, over the years. Yeah. A lot of people have told me that. But I, but I, at the same time, over the years, I've kind of warmed to you and I can see the softer side behind this exterior that you, that you put on. And I'm wondering about like this idea of who you are. How true is that? It's total. It's total. My belief in myself and my belief that I'm doing the right thing as I see it and I'm being true to myself and I do the things I've helped out so many people over the years, which I've never talked about. I never had this conversation in so many ways. On the outside, I am, I can be austere and I can be arrogant and self-knowing in my belief about my, myself and my own abilities. I'll give you another story. I'm at Sky Sports and um, the chief executive of Sky Sports Right, not a producer, the chief executive. And he calls me in. Um, I think it's Rodney Marsh in my office. So I went into his office. He said, Rodney, he said, um, Soccer Saturday, he said, great show, you're doing great, you're doing great, fantastic, we love the way you do it, and you love the way you, you're all the banter. He said, uh, he said, but we've got a problem. So I said, uh, oh yeah, what's that? He said, We've had four complaints by Ofcom, which is the, the national, as you know, the national company that regulates broadcasting. He said, we've had four complaints at Sky Sports in the last year, and three of them are you. <laughs> so, so I said, um, I sat there and I said, well, what's your point? And he looked at me and he went, he said, sometimes you can be so intimidating. That's an example, Dan, to your point. And do you think those, the barriers that you put up though, do you think as you've got older, do you feel that you've got grandkids and obviously you've got, you know, you love you, your kids and you've been a very different dad to them than your dad was to you. Do you think those edges and those barriers have softened a little bit now? 100%. What I love about it, Lisa, is, is my life, is how um, I've adjusted and I am the biggest the easiest person with my grandkids. I'm useless. <laughs> yeah. Granddad, can we have some Lego? Yeah. Can we have some this? Yeah. Can we have some ice cream? Yeah. Can we have some more ice cream? Yeah. You know, that's how I've become. So I've, I was that way with my children. I'm, I'm now more that way with my grandchildren. So yeah, I've, I've adapted. Yes. I like the softer you, Rod. I think you need to <laughs> Danny's show not the world scared, more you know. of it. <laughs> <laughs> I only know this, Rodney, so I'm all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'd like to ask you about what you said, Rod, that you are a man of faith. What is that faith? I have faith that if you do the right things for the right reasons, ultimately right things will be done to you. But what, what is your faith? Just remind me of what your, your faith, because I thought your faith... I have no was... faith. That's what I'm saying. It's not, it's, not a, it's, a, it's not a faith to something. It's not a faith to God or a being or anything. It's the faith of doing right. If you do what's, what you feel is right for you, I have faith that it will come back to me. It's not, it's not about um, Christianity or, or Islam or, any, or anything. It's just about doing right for people. I do right for people all the time in my life. I never talk about it. Rodney, do you feel that 
you've been as supported by people around you and I'm not mean I don't mean your family I mean friends and people in the industry as much as you've been there for them maybe in a quiet way no no they've been useless most people in my life have been useless outside of my blood family most people there's been a there's been a a handful of people that I respect and love I'll put Danny in there as one of them over the years um but precious, probably not five or six people. You see what it is? It, it's, it, I, I believe in this. If people believe in you, even though you do things wrong or you, you don't do the right thing or you make a mistake, they still believe in you. They believe in you. Not the fact that you, you lost 10 grand gambling on a horse or whatever it is. They believe in you. And I've got precious those few people in my life. I feel that what you've said throughout this conversation and what, what's clear from your life and reading your book is, is that, that the boundaries that you set. And if it's not right for you, you don't need to check in with everybody else and a, an army of people to, to check in whether what you think and what you do is okay. Because if it's okay to you, then it's okay. And that, again, is, is going back to the conviction of your beliefs which a lot of people, I think, don't feel the same confidence in their own beliefs and their own boundaries. Lisa, that's such a terrific point. So many people, and we're talking about, the premise of this conversation was about how people go on in life to be successful through things that have been negative in their lives and they go on and, and do successful things and... Um, and the reason that some people do, and some people crumble up and hide under the covers, right? So I, I don't apologize for the way that I na navigate the failures of my life and the people that I've struck off my list because I've done things for them and the only time that um, something's come up they need to repay me in a certain way or whatever or be on my side and they've dumped, you know, they've, oh, no, sorry, no, don't really know. Well, when that happens, I cost those people off my life. And I've done that so many times, including people like Joe Corrigan and, uh, and Mike Doyle and, and, and um, Dennis Stewart and people like that, that were all great with me when it was going their way. And I, you know, as soon as it went the other way, they, they, they deserted me. And they deserved my reaction to that, in my view. Other people might say, well, what about forgiveness? Let's talk about forgiveness. What does forgiveness mean? Somebody explain to me what forgiveness means. Explain that. So forgiveness, Rod, I, I think forgiveness is when something happens in life to you and you hold a negative emotion about that or about the person that did something to you. And forgiveness is when you let go of that negative emotion. And my, my sense is that forgiveness is actually to forgive yourself because you're holding that negative emotion in yourself. Hmm, that's, um, yeah, very true. Rod, what about, so we speak about performance and successful people and life, and what what has been your experience of success and happiness? When have you been happiest in your life? Throughout my life, I've, I've met um, so many different people at so many different times, and the experiences of doing that 
kind of lead you to where you be, where you eventually arrive at. Uh, I'm a bit convoluted on this because I'm trying to use an example. People that do big things, big things in context, meaning a big thing to um, a big thing to Francis Lee taking a penalty in front of sixty thousand people is a a different big thing than Rod Stewart singing in front of 60,000 people at Wembley Stadium. They're big, but they're big in context. So I've done lots of big things in my life at big times and made big money and done big things, but only within the context. And I think that I was trying to get to a point where I've done something within the context of what I've done and it's so impactful and and because I was going to use scoring a goal at Wembley in front of a hundred thousand people and then going on and winning it and then thinking this is talking about Queen's Park Rangers now it's almost for the hundred thousand people that are there rather than myself and it's success vicariously but that's as big for me as a doctor performing surgery on a young child. At that, you see, I'm trying to see the analogy I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. I can see the analogy, but I I don't think you've answered my question. So, what has been the happiest part With, of your life? Well, the happiest times of my life was the morning that my wife brought my daughter Joanna home from the hospital and I picked her up and the smell of her breath on my nose was beautiful and it's the happiest that I've been you know the the total innocence the holding of the baby and the breath on it I'll never forget the breath and it was just it was so so joyous such so so much joy um that'd be up there but then of course i had things with my son as well and uh, you know that that uh, being with my son and and doing things together with him and uh, teaching him how to uh, water ski gave me tremendous joy tremendous joy um but it's all to your point the breath of the of a newborn child, Joanna, uh, is joyous. Teaching my grand, uh, t- teaching my son Jonathan how to water ski is joyous. Nothing comes close in my life to that. Scoring a goal at Wembley in front of a hundred thousand people, no. Um, winning winning games at Old Trafford and beating Man United three one, and me scoring a goal straight. You know, no. Um, playing for England against Scotland at Wembley and at, at Hamden Park and beating them one nil, and uh, the old enemy and all that, and uh, laughing at all the Scots people in the crowd. No, that's uh, that didn't give me any joy. What about the one at Wembley where Scotland beat England? What about that one? I, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Rod, um, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I really appreciate your time and your friendship. 
And I think I just want to end by saying that, you know, the two moments that really I think will stick with me for a long time from this conversation are the moment where your grandfather hit your dad with the hammer in the knee and then the complete opposite end of the spectrum when you smelt Joanna's breath when she was newly born. And it shows like the whole spectrum and the, and the beauty of life. And when you spoke about Joanna, it made me want to cry. And I wondered, did you cry in that, at that moment? No. I had arthritis at the time. <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> All right, boys and girls. Right, you're right. So you are a riot. It's brilliant. Danny, so that was a bit of a roller coaster of a conversation, I felt. Yeah, unbelievable, Lisa. I think we got there in the end, didn't we? <laughs> and you know, when he spoke about Joanna, his daughter, he spoke about the smell of her breath and how he can still smell it now. Uh, you know, it just it warms my heart even mm. speaking about it. Mm. Uh, there was another moment, Lisa, where I felt really uh, love, actually, and quite honoured because he spoke that uh, he spoke about not having many people in his life that he trusted and loved, and I felt really sad to hear that. And at the same time, he then said that I was on that list, and I was quite surprised. But it felt like a huge honour to be, you know, considered by Rodney in in those terms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, what an honour, really, because he holds he has so few people that he can feel that he can rely on, and. It made me feel quite sad because he talked about, again, with absolute conviction that he knows that he's helped so many people out in his career and his life, that he is somebody that you can go to, even though he's got that extremely hard exterior, that softness and that empathy of the man came through in our conversation. I felt privileged to be part of the conversation that could draw that out of him. But he does feel let down, I think, by other people, not necessarily his close family and friends, but certainly professionals in his career that he just doesn't feel showed up with the same values and integrity that he has. Yeah, and I think it's not too difficult to imagine where where that uh, sense of feeling let down comes mm. from, Lisa, because, you know, he speaks about the experiences with his father and he said that his if he missed a penalty, for example, his dad would take him out at night and make him do 150 and have to get 10 done. If not, then he'd, he'd see Kennedy. And it's quite familiar story, Lisa, really, isn't it, to us um, from a lot of the successful high performers that we've interviewed that there's quite often trauma early on in their life. And that creates a kind of drive and determination that gets them somewhere. And in a lot of cases, that self-belief, it doesn't seem as as consistent as Rodney's because he says that this self-belief has never let him down. And it makes me wonder about the level of the trauma that he actually went through, um, you know, to create this exterior that was so, so strong and so powerful that it never let him down. And I, I think this relationship between trauma and success, I think we're learning more and more about it. And it's really a powerful uh, listen in, in this episode. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I don't think he's actually ever been able to get over the fact that he wasn't able to respond to his dad when his dad was dying. And 
in this book, he says he never cried again after that. And that's, that's really hard, isn't it? That makes me feel sad. But what is lovely is I think as he's got older and he's got grandkids and he's got his children, you know, I kind of think that maybe he's not the person he thinks he is anymore. I think he's moved on from that persona that he's carried all his life. He's still telling himself that's who he is and I don't think he is anymore. You know, you wouldn't necessarily picture Rodney pouring through Shakespearean plays, but it's, as he said before, you know, he's found something in that that's given him a structure and a focus that he replaced other things. And the quote, to thine own self be true, comes from um, Hamlet and is part of the conversation between King Claudius's chief of staff and his son Laertes, who's going off to university. And the rest of that quote is, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day, thou canst not be false to any man. And Rodney doesn't quote that bit, but it's absolutely true. I mean, it absolutely sums up the way he's decided to live his life, that he won't make any apology for the way he's behaved. He's behaved in that way because it's right for him at that time, but he's prepared to live with the consequences. And it's just fascinating. I also found it quite interesting, Lisa, that because he's so secure in that to thine own self be true, it kind of rubs off on you. And even though uh, he, he's challenging, it makes you be very truthful yourself and be be truthful in your own se- self. You know, a, a lot of the questions I asked him, I said that uh, I found him scary when he was when he was young, and and, and we warmed, I warmed up to him, and it kind of reduces the fear about being who you are and I think that's a really powerful message for all of our listeners completely I agree with you I think that that is um it's great advice isn't it and it means that you don't have to have that huge um procrastination in life when you feel you've got to check in with everybody else to see whether or not your behaviors suit them he doesn't care his behaviors suit him and he stands by them I do think for our listeners as well, if you've not read the speech, go and read it because that speech is full of amazing life advice. And I think by reading it, Rodney's taken a lot of it. Yeah, well, it's going to be on his epitaph, isn't it? And I just hope they heard enough to get to the part that I really love. And, you know, underneath that, there's a deeply loving human being who's always been a kind, generous man to me. And I hope they hear that side of him as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lobster Brain. Lobster Brain will be back on the 2nd of March with Biet Simpkin, who is a meditation teacher in California to some of the biggest Hollywood stars. Danny, what do you think our listeners will get from Biet? Lisa, I, I love Biet. I think not only is, is her knowledge about meditation and spirituality incredible, uh, she's a badass. And anybody who wants to know about themselves needs to listen to Biet because she is... Yeah, one of the biggest badasses I've ever met. You might think she's poles apart from Rodney Marsh, but in actual fact, there's some incredible similarities. Yeah, and I think uh, it's a great lesson because, you know, there's an idea that if you're spiritual, you're off and you're not you're not into worldly goods. But Biet is like right in your face and she's like Rodney and she's got incredible self-belief. And I think it's a great advertisement for self-belief and self-knowledge and 
yeah she she's not shy like Rodney <laughs> and I think it's also important that because we do have some listeners that struggle with listening to more of the spiritual episodes that we have and in actual fact what really appealed to me about this is that spiritualism can be commercial in the meantime please do follow Lobster Brain and press the button you can find it on Apple or Spotify and that way we can continue to get some amazing guests for you to listen to Thank you.